Hey, what's going on, everyone? And welcome to another episode of Talking in Bits. But before we actually get to the show, I wanted to remind you guys that Talking in Bits is completely 100% audience funded. What that basically means is, is that you will never have to sit through no ads while you're listening to Talking in Bits. And the only way we can continue to do that and have been able to do that is with contributions and donations with great listeners such as yourself. So in order to keep that spirit alive, there's a few ways that you can actually donate to the show. My favorite way is podcasting 2.0 apps. There's a bunch of them out there, but my two favorite are Fountain App and Breeze. And with these apps, it's basically like any other podcasting app. You can subscribe to Talking in Bits. Um, you can load up some sats into the wallet and you can set how many sats per minute you think Talking in Bits is worth or how much value you're receiving from Talking in Bits. You can do this from both of those apps. Another really cool feature in, the, in these apps, these podcast 2.0 apps, is the boost feature. And what the boost feature is, is basically you get to pick a certain amount of sets that you want to send in and you can embed a message inside of that transaction into the show. And what I'm going to do is week to week, the best ones that come in, I'm going to read them and give shout outs here live on the show. So that's another way that you can help keep this ad free um, and keep this content rolling. Uh, if you're not using the podcast 2.0 apps, then you can head on over to talkingandbits.com backslash donate. And there you'll find various links to be able to send in Lightning, to be able to send on-chain, and even a Paynim. So go check out the, the website. That's another way to contribute. And if you're listening to us on the legacy outlets like YouTube, Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, then you could do the good old-fashioned leave a review, share, subscribe. All that stuff helps and helps us float up higher so more people can get this value and more people can get everything that we want to provide to our listeners. So once again, we appreciate you. The only reason we've been able to keep this up is because of y'all, and we want to keep that going for as long as we can. All right, without further ado, on to this week's episode. I also made the case for winning Bitcoin, the quintessence of scarcity premium. Scarcity premium. It's literally the only large tradable asset in the world that has a known fixed maximum supply. By its design, the total quantity of Bitcoins cannot exceed 21 million. Bitcoin is the hardest money that has ever been invented. If you don't have my private key, you cannot spend my Bitcoin, period. And this is the power of Bitcoin. This is the power of Bitcoin. Since the first time we figured out how to create true property that you can take possession of with full custodial rights. Hey, what's going on, everyone? And welcome to another episode of Talking in Bits, where we walk you through Bitcoin bit by bit so we can provide you with the information you need to succeed and persist. Back with episode 75, and I'm extremely excited about this episode because I got a long private, long privacy expert and advocate here, and uh, I got Q&A here. But Q&A, there's a famous line that goes around in Bitcoin that says, uh, make sure you know where your transaction is going, et cetera, because Bitcoin does not have a customer service department or anybody or whatever. Well, you're the second best thing, good sir. I mean, all the, <laughs> the resources that you've <laughs> gathered up together, you might as well be Bitcoin's customer service. Welcome to the show, Q&A. Appreciate you, good sir. Yeah, thank you for the kind words. I like that one, made me chuckle. And uh, yeah, absolute pleasure to be on. <laughs> Honored to be uh, to get the opportunity to chat with you today. So uh, yeah, I think uh, in terms of coming back to your, your thing about customer service, and uh, there's, there's probably a, a sliver of truth to that. Yeah, I think... Um, my my Telegram uh, DMs are, are often filled every time I wake up with uh, with people asking asking questions and things like that. But do you know what? I I genuinely love it. It's it's not sort of it's a you know don't get me wrong. It's a big drain on my time. But um, 
I've said it before, you know, when, when, if I play a small part in, in helping people have that little light bulb moment in relation to Bitcoin, yeah, it's, it really, yeah, you know, lights a fire inside me. So it's, it's absolutely not a chore. So yeah, I love it. Yeah, no, I mean, I wasn't even thinking about the Telegram stuff. You're right. I mean, I even saw a few links on, on your uh, Bitcoiners that guide where it was like, hey, if you want to set up a call with me, like, let's go, let's do this. So it's like, if if Bitcoin didn't have a customer service department, you're it, good sir. You already filled that niche and, and I provided that uh, for the users. And we'll get into a little bit more of all the resources you put together here in a little bit. Um, but before we we get going in there, please Q&A. Uh, for for the uh, for the listeners here, the new listeners, what I like to call the first time listeners and the last time listeners, because you know I like to be realistic. Sometimes this podcast where <laughs> you may never see them again. Sometimes this podcast where they stick around forever. Uh, so for the first time and last time listeners, can you let the listeners know a little bit about yourself uh, and how your introduction to Bitcoin came about? Yeah, sure. So um, I, my first uh, touch on the stove was uh, in 2017, right at the peak of the mania. Um, unfortunately, the uh, the touch in the stove wasn't with Bitcoin. It was with uh, everything but Bitcoin. Got massively sucked into the uh, the altcoin hype cycle. Uh, bought the very top of many of the coins and then lost a shit ton of money thereafter. <laughs> um, and then it just as all all of the coins, including Bitcoin, that after that twenty k uh, peak, uh, were slowly bleeding out. Um, I kind of just stuck around slowly and. The more uh, the Bitcoin maximalists, I guess, if you want to call them that, um, or the people who are Bitcoin only slowly started to trickle their way into my life through various podcasts, uh, YouTube channels, uh, things like that. And slowly but surely, it started to make a bit more sense as to why Bitcoin only uh, made sense uh, and why, you know, potentially all of these other coins were losing value significantly faster than uh, than Bitcoin was. And, and back then, you know, I, I'll openly hold my hand up. I was in this for, you know, I wanted to exchange some fiat. I wanted to make a quick book and then cash out later and go buy myself a nice car or a house or depending on how it performed. Obviously, things have changed for me significantly since then, and I'm sure we'll, we'll get into that. But um, yeah, it, it slowly, Bitcoin, the, the Bitcoin only mantra just slowly started to make sense, fell massively down the rabbit hole, more so on the technical side, listening to people like Matt, Marty, Stefan, et cetera, you know, the, the, the real OGs have got a lot to thank them for. Um, over the course of like 2018, 2019, 2020, my knowledge uh, started to grow and I started to get really involved in the communities, mainly on Telegram and interacting with people who are, you know, remain to this day far smarter than I am. And again, I've got a lot to thank for people like that. And um, I just started to notice that I was able to contribute back. And we, th there was, as there's, you know, we have this slow, steady trickle of people coming into the space. I slowly found myself to be in that position where I could help other people. And that really, uh, like I touched on earlier, it really kind of liked to fire inside me. And I really get a kick out of um, helping people understand something that I'm passionate about, obviously with Bitcoin. Um, so yeah, it, like I say, it just it kind of went from there that I just started slowly helping people. I just thought, hang on a minute, I, I tend to be answering the same questions over and over again here. There's, there must be a better way that I can leverage my time, which is when I then started to put pen to paper, so to speak, and create the first iteration of my website, which is now turned into what is Bitcoiner.guide today. Um, so that's been a, a culmination of thousands of, well, hundreds of, and thousands of hours Um of you know spare time documenting my my own journey essentially um but in the hope that it sort of helps people along their journey so um 
slowly built up, uh, you know, a fairly decent catalog of tutorials on various different wallets, nodes, multi-sig, you name it. If it's a basic Bitcoin concept, the, the chances are that it's covered on my website. Um, so yes, I've slowly just worked on that over recent years. Um, just bringing people along my journey with me, you know, I'm, and just to preface this, you know, a lot of people tend to think when they speak to me or ask me questions in DMs that I'm some sort of uh, shadowy super coder or uh, I've got a developer background and that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, my previous job before I started to work full-time in Bitcoin was worlds and worlds apart from anything to do with computers or especially Bitcoin. So I'm, you know, I'm, I guess I'm living proof that, you know, if you just kind of stick to, uh, if, or if you dedicate yourself to learning about something, then you can get a, a fairly decent level of competency with it. Um, and yeah, as, as I alluded to then, um, my contributions to the space got recognized, thankfully, by uh, Zach at Foundation Devices. And uh, I've been working there for nearly 12 months now as head of support. And I literally get to do and help people on a daily basis and get paid for it. So quite literally uh, living the dream. Yeah, that's amazing. And I can relate uh, in so many different ways. And we'll we'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, what I wanted to circle back on there, uh, Q and A, is um, you know, we we I was actually ripping about this in the last solo rip about how like we're not done here with Bitcoin. Like a lot of people like to sit back and basically say, oh, all I have to do is just you know buy on Cash App and then just sit back and wait to be rich. And it's like we all have so much to do here and so much to contribute to Bitcoin. But I also spoke about how we need to find how to best, you know. Um, how to, how to best contribute to Bitcoin and our strengths, right? Obviously, we don't want to use our weaknesses. We want to use our strengths. Um, how, how, how did you figure out your way to contribute? Was educating and, 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 you know, and schooling people, as I would like to say, something that you inherently always love to do? Or did you just you know, find an opportunity to do that because it was lacking most in the space? How, how did you get to, to find how you wanted to contribute? Yeah, I guess it's twofold, really. First and foremost, yeah, I, I, throughout my whole life, really, I've just got a kick out of helping people, be that through whatever it is, just, just helping people understand things or learn new, new skills, whatever it may be. Um, so that was the first thing, and then second thing was, as I started to, like, I say, get involved in the community a lot more. Obviously, I, I knew that the super technical stuff was way beyond me, um, but there was a, I, I found myself in a bit of a. Uh, a middle ground between the absolute newcomers and let's say the developers. Um, and as I was getting involved in the communities of the projects that I was really passionate about, like Samurai Wallet, Ronin Dojo and things like that, I just thought, well, you know, these are really small teams. Uh, they're, they're not earning a lot or they're not earning anything at all because, you know, they may not have a business model at the time that I was contributing. So I thought, well, if I can uh, take a little bit of weight off the developer's shoulders so that they can go and make the tool that I'm passionate about a little bit better, or if I can, you know, if I want a feature added and I ask them, if I can take a little bit of load off their shoulders by just answering the simple questions that are absolutely trivial to them, uh, if I can free up a couple of hours a week by doing that on Telegram or Twitter or wherever, um, then that can be my way of contributing to the space. And, you know, I can do that comfortably because I've spent a couple of years learning how the various tools work. Um, so yeah, I just, I, I guess I just saw that as my kind of opportunity really. And my little bit of a niche and yeah, as I, um, it was, you know, it was also, um, quite beneficial for me as well, because inevitably there'd be questions come along where I wouldn't know the answer. And I, mm. rather than just not answer the question, I'd take it upon myself to go and find the answer. And, you know, by proxy, I would 
learn that little piece of information as well, as well as passing it on to whoever it was that asked the question. So right. a big way of me learning was me trying to find the answers to other people's questions. So uh, that's kind of how it came about really. And it's not really stopped since. Yeah, I just um, just contribute to the, the projects that I'm passionate about. And I just see it as a, a, a way for me to easily sort of uh, help propel the project forward without having a direct impact on, on the code, which is, you know, it's not my forte at all and probably never will be. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Uh, I love how you framed it as like, take the pressure off the developers back. Cause you're right. They, you know, it's hard, uh, especially when you don't have funding, right? It, it's, it's hard to have like a team, uh, like a client services team or something that handles the questions while uh, you get to do the, or they get to do the super shadow coterie stuff. Uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, great way. Now advice for anybody who's looking to find their space to contribute in Bitcoin, if you were to have any. Oh, uh, well, definitely. I alluded to it earlier. I mean, first and foremost, find what you're passionate about in terms of, you know, is it a wallet? Is it a no project? Because if it's something that you're passionate about, you're going to be happy to do it. You're going to enjoy doing it. You're going to want to do more of it and you're going to be comfortable doing it for free. Um, so that would be the first thing. Uh, and then I guess secondly would be try and, uh, find a little, you know, study the project, see how the community operates, see how the developers operate, play with the tool itself and, you know, see where you would want to improve it and then sort of pool all of those resources and, and think about where is, where you can best spend your time that's relevant to your skill level. Uh, obviously each person is going to be different and it would depend on the project or, or tool that they want to sort of help and contribute with as to what that specifically looks like. Um, but there is, especially most of these open source uh, tools, like you say, they're either got no funding or very little funding. So even just something as simple as using the, let's say it's a wallet, download the wallet um, and just provide some constructive criticism. You know, if something doesn't make sense to you, then there's a very high likelihood that there's somebody else out there that would also be confused by whatever concept it is that you, you, you know, that you're not sure about. Just provide some feedback. Just obviously be careful how you do it. These developers are overworked and underpaid. So, you know, go in and be constructive and provide constructive feedback. But that's a really easy way to, to, um, to contribute without, you know, do, having to do much work or be all that knowledgeable. Um, I think it's a great way to start. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of reprogramming on a lot of people's ends, especially the new newbies coming into Bitcoin. And the reason I say that is because, I mean, um, nowadays, if you're using your favorite app, um, I can't really think of anyone that I even want to highlight here. But, you know, the typicals that are downloading everybody's phone, maybe the Googles of the world, um, they tell you to get feedback, but your feedback kind of just goes into the ethos. Right. Like nothing ever happens when you submit feedback for any of your. So let's say your bank provider. You say, hey, I hate the fact, and this has actually happened to me. Uh, hey, I hate the fact that a few months ago I was able to use your app with a VPN. And now, for whatever reason, I can't use your app with a VPN. Here's feedback to tell you that I'm upset. Uh, they basically, that, that just goes into the ethos. Nobody ever does anything. But in the Bitcoin space, you're saying that it's more likely to get listened to and possibly responded to and worked on. Yeah, yeah. I'll give you a perfect example of what I just went through. Um, I'm a big uh, user of Sparrow Wallet, especially when I'm doing uh, testing for foundation when we're doing improvements and stuff with the wallet. Um, so I'll use Sparrow in testnet mode quite a lot. Previously, you used to have to go into the command line and type a couple of commands to be able to open Sparrow Wallet in testnet mode, which, you know, once you've done it a couple of times, it's not that hard. But for somebody who's new to Bitcoin that might want to uh, just practice a little bit, that might be that might be the stopping point for them to go, oh, I don't know how to do that. I'm, I'm not convinced with the command line. I'm just going to leave it. 
So I spoke to, I made a GitHub issue on the Sparrow uh, wallet uh, repository and just said, I think it'd be really, really useful if we could, from the user interface, just click a, drop, click a button to open, reopen Sparrow wallet in testnet mode. I know, I know loads of people that will um, get some value from that so that they can, you know, in a couple of clicks, they can just be in practice mode with their Bitcoin wallet and just play to their heart's content. Also, it helped me massively because, you know, I opened Spiral Wallet in testnet mode loads of times a day through my day job. Uh, so I've got some benefit out, out of it as well. Craig, the lead dev at Sparrow, thought it was a great idea and implemented it in the next release. And like you say, like you touched on with Google, you just wouldn't get that type of service with a, with a, you know, with a closed source tech conglomerate like that. So, yeah, it's one of the reasons that I love the open source space and being able to, to contribute in ways like that. It's just, uh, I think it's fantastic. Yeah, that's a great example. Uh, but yeah, for anybody listening that's new and, you know, kind of have like that, you know, Google tech conglomerate experience, like it's it's different, especially when it's with FOSS, uh, uh, open source software. Uh, shout out to Craig. Craig is doing fantastic work. Love Sparrow. Uh, didn't purposely plan to wear the hat, but I, I do love Sparrow. It's incredible. I did not know about the test net feature, though. So I am going to definitely dig into that. Um Wanna uh, walk, you can walk me through it, but maybe walk the listeners through it. The benefits of running an environment with testnet. Um, I'll give you the little bit of knowledge that I have. Simply is is um, I ran testnet on my node uh, and basically just grabbed coins from a testnet faucet, uh, built a multi sig uh, and did a few small things. But that's about as far as my reach has gone. Um, please walk us through testnet and the benefits of of maybe even a new user using testnet. Yeah, so I, I guess the that was a good analogy that you used, but the clue is in the name. It's uh, it's basically a carbon copy of the Bitcoin network um, where the Bitcoin is worthless. So, you know, if you make a massive mistake, if you lose it, if you screw up the creation of your multi-sig wallet, it doesn't matter. You haven't lost any value and you can just go and get some more testnet coins. You don't, there's no real value at risk. And that's where the value of using testnet comes from in terms of you can just be as reckless as you, as you like. You know, if, you, if you're if you thinking about going to a multi-sig solution for your real cold storage, I would absolutely advocate doing that in a testnet environment first um, so that you can, you know, do it 10 times over if you want so that you're fully up to speed and comfortable with the process that is that, that requires before you go and do that in a real environment with real funds at risk. Um, so fortunately, most of the signing devices uh, and most of the software wallets, especially Sparrow, uh, all support a testnet environment. So um, it's literally you being able to play with the guardrail set as high as possible so you don't have to worry at all. Yeah, it's, it's, is, is Sparrow the easiest, um, well, is Sparrow the easiest way to get on testnet for a new, for a new person? Because when I, when I did it with uh, my I, node, it, it did involve a lot of command line work when, when I got it going on my node. Yeah, definitely. I think the, the, the thing with testnet, with, sorry, yeah, the thing with testnet is, um, because it's just a test environment that you don't have the same privacy requirements that you would do if you were using it with real funds. So with Sparrow, you can open it up, you can click the drop down and say, yes, I want to go to testnet. You don't need to mess around with your own node if you run one because it just connects to one of the default testnet nodes. There's no, like I say, it's not real funds. So if people are watching what you do, who cares? Right. And, and conversely, to interact with, let's say, a multi-sig in testnet, you would have to uh, calibrate your devices to be on testnet as well. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, exactly. So again, I think, uh, well, most of the good, uh, signing devices now all have a testnet mode. So, um, if you're in the market for 
buy them one uh, and you're interested in testing that, just have a check before you take the plunge. Uh, but like I say, most of the good ones that most of the uh, popular Bitcoiners will recommend will all have testnet modes. Well, fantastic, man. And just to, because I want to get into privacy now and I want to get into um, a lot of this stuff, but just to sign off there on the Bitcoiners.guide, anybody who's listening could go there and they could get literally multi-sig help. They could get wallet support help like Sparrow, uh, uh, Nodes, uh, Lightning. I mean, pretty much damn near everything. And we, we got the C tool, which I want to get into here next. Uh, but is there any last things you want to bring up about Bitcoin Guide that maybe I missed here? Uh, no, I think you covered it. Like I say, there's something for everyone there. We start from absolute basic, simple questions and answers, which is where my pseudonym name comes from. And then you can get right into the nitty gritty of setting up a multi-sig or, or going down the no KYC route. Um, yeah, there's something for everybody there. Just have a poke around and uh, see what you can find. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. I'm actually, um, as soon as I get to my Twitter afterwards, I think I'm just going to plug the website on my like little bio thing there because uh, I do get questions all the time and I didn't, put all the sweat equity that you did and you know why not plug in such a fantastic website that you've put together so thanks uh not only for us experience uh bitcoiners it's extremely helpful but uh, you know definitely for the newbies for sure thanks for putting that together man no thanks man thanks for sharing it yeah absolutely all right we're gonna get into you know uh seeds i want to get into deprivation paths i want to get a little bit deeper here but just to over encompassing and get into that conversation deeper i want to talk about privacy as a whole so i had Elsie, Elsie um, Hoddle is a good, good friend of mine. He's been on the show a few times. He has this really, uh, he framed this thing really cool with me. Uh, uh, it's pretty much a sentence to kind of sum it up where it's like, you just want to make yourself more expensive to get to. Um, because I think when people hear the word privacy, it's binary. They either think like, holy crap, I have to go completely off the grid and disappear or the other side, which is like, nah, I'd rather just have the convenience of it and, and, and you know, stick to whatever. Um, give me your thoughts on just privacy as a whole. And is it really possible to be completely private? Yeah. Okay. First off, shout out LC. Love his podcast. He's a great dude. Um, oh, yeah. But yeah, and I think his analogy is great as well. Um, I, I kind of rephrase it sl- somewhat differently, but the message is essentially the same. And I, I sort of say, make sure that you're not the lowest hanging fruit, which is essentially the same as what he's saying. Right. To answer your question of, can you achieve privacy with Bitcoin? Yes, you can. Is it easy? Unfortunately not. Um, <laughs> You're absolutely right that it's, I don't think it's a binary option. You, there isn't, you can't just flick a switch or use a specific tool and be private. There's, you need to have much more of a holistic approach, which unfortunately is what puts a lot of people off because they, they kind of, I don't know, they might read my guide or they come across Econo Alchemist guides and think, shit, that looks like a lot of work. And, you know, for an absolute newcomer, yes, it's going to be a, a big step change. If, you know, if you've just been uh, stacking sats on Cash App and sending it straight to your ledger device, then, you know, there's a couple of hurdles that you're going to have to get over to make changes to the way you, uh, you know, operate with Bitcoin or purchase Bitcoin to be able to achieve that level of privacy. I mean, but there are more simple things that that people can do to interact with with Bitcoin more privately. Um, But I think one of the key ones for me uh, is something that I'm a staunch advocate of is... um, starting that privacy journey from where you purchase it or how you purchase it. Um, and that's via, you know, hopefully via no KYC methods. So that would be, 
um, via methods like peer-to-peer marketplaces or eight, some ATMs or cash purchases, um, which you know are absolutely are nowhere near as easy as going onto Cash App and smashing, uh, hitting Smash Buy, uh, where it lands into your account. Obviously, it's not yours until you withdraw it, but um, you know that's absolutely something the easiest way to do it. But unfortunately, it's not the most private way because. Uh, Cash App knows who you are. They've got all of your personal information. And um, if we uh, sort of hurtle towards more of a adversarial environment, um, Odell puts it quite well of, you know, there's essentially a list of Bitcoiners with names and addresses and exactly how much they own. And that worries me a little bit uh, because the people that are on those lists of Bitcoiners, you know, if we do head into a really horrible environment where you know, governments are really hostile towards Bitcoin, then those Bitcoiners are going to be the first ones to have questions asked of them. So if you were to to purchase, uh, you know, even if you just start a separate stack, you know, I know it's not palatable for people to think, oh shit, I've got all this KYC Bitcoin, what am I going to do now? And, um, you know, it's, it's not palatable for most people to be, you know, selling that back and then um, buying in through BISC or HODL HODL or via ATMs, you know, uh, that's going to be quite difficult. So uh, an actionable step would be, you know, just, just separate to have two different pots of Bitcoin, have your KYC stuff that's, you know, bagged and tagged if you like, and then have a separate, you know, more private stash that you start to purchase, you know, weekly through an ATM or, you know, you start to set up some buy orders on BISC. Um, you'll learn a lot in the process and, you know, you'll have sort of a, a contingency stash if you like, if thing, if, you know, if the worst were to happen and, uh, we do head towards a hostile environment where, you know, known Bitcoiners are, are targeted. You know, I hope that's not the case, but, you know, with Bitcoiners, we, we like to think adversarially. And I think purchasing some private sats is, should be part of everybody's uh, thought process there. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point there. So there, there does exist a universe where you can, you know, basically, like you said, have that cash app, those cash app KYC sats. And I hate to keep using Cash App because it sounds like it's an ad. This is not an ad for Cash App. That's just the easiest example. It could be Strike. You replace it with any anyone that you want to replace here. Uh, but the the idea would be is, is if you are KYCing then, and you're sending those stats to cold storage, those should be behind a different private key than maybe if you have a miner set up and you're going directly from your miner to a different set of private keys, which is more secure. Is that too basic or is that kind of the point? No, that's absolutely the point. I mean, if you do have those two separate, let's say you've got two separate hardware wallets, make it really simple. You've got, you're sending your KYC stuff to, you know, hardware wallet number one, and then your no KYC stuff is going separately to hardware wallet number two. Um, if you, as soon as you kind of merge those or spend any of those together into transactions, they would be, uh, so, you know, guilty by association, if you like, um, just purely by the fact that they've been seen together in a transaction. So it would essentially uh, kind of de-anonymize the, the, the private sats or the no KYC stuff. So keeping them separate in separate wallets is, is absolutely the, the, the best way to do that. Now, you don't necessarily have to do that via two separate hardware wallets. I just use that as an analogy. You could use one hardware wallet and use different uh, accounts, or you could use different passphrases to separate them. It all depends on, you know, what pieces of information you want to, to store or what your technical competency is with, you know, are you comfortable with managing different accounts on a single hardware wallet? Um, or are you comfortable managing two or three different passphrases and the seed phrase? And, you know, th- there's a lot to consider. And that's why I touched on right at the start that, you know, it's a lot more of a holistic approach that's required. You can't just uh, start buying no KYC and that's it. You're, you're done, job done. 
Yeah, yeah, a little bit of work involved. But you know, the the double the double sided benefit, if, if we can call it that, is is that the more you actually start exploring this stuff, um, the the more you know bullish you get, I guess, right? The more under, uh, understanding of the network you are, uh, and the more you could thus for you know protect your future stack uh, if ho- governments were to get hostile. So I think there's an education in that ability to want to you know slowly learn the, these tactics and these tools to be able to secure that stack. Yeah, one thing I will say, and a bit of a self shill here, but it kind of um, it summarizes uh, everything that I've kind of just been alluding to in this privacy section. Is I've got a privacy guide on my website. Um, just click on the literally click on privacy guide, and it will take you through all of the different steps that I deem would be the optimal sort of holistic approach. So in terms of how you source your Bitcoin, how you secure it, uh, how you can keep it separate from the different parts of Bitcoin. You know, if you want to use CoinJoin, you can do that as part of this approach and then how you would spend that with the various privacy tools that are available. So uh, that's kind of an all-encompassing guide um, and one that's been pretty well received. And um, so, yeah, if, if if anybody listening to this that's kind of interested in going down the privacy route, I'd urge you to have a read through that. You know, it's it's you know, there's a fair few pages to it. Like I say, you know, I'm I'm the first one to admit Bitcoin privacy is not easy. There's a lot of steps to it, but if you're serious about it, then you know that that might be a good start to to get your uh, eyes wrapped around. Yeah, absolutely, and it's all there together. So you could spend thousands of hours scourging the internet to try to find the different puzzle pieces, or you could go to the privacy guide and it's all basically there for you, which is, which is a huge plus. Um, this is a question that I've always wondered. Uh, I've never taken action on this because, I don't know, it wasn't really that important. I have my own privacy stack going in different alternatives. Uh, but considering Lightning is second layer, if you were to use that same Cash App example, right, and then you send to a Lightning wallet, um, let's say Moon, right, does that... I mean, obviously, it's not as effective as a coin join is, but does that kind of re-grant you some privacy, if that's the right way to say it, or is it still docs because the Lightning Channel is coming from Cash App, regardless? No, I'd say it would uh, grant you some what what we call in the business is forward-looking privacy. So, let's say that you buy from Cash App and then you send to Cold Storage, and then you decide that you want to spend some via Lightning. So it would be trivial to cash up to, obviously they know your withdrawal address in your cold storage because you supply it to them to withdraw. So they'd be able to see that. And then they'd be able to see that that address is spent to uh, a Lightning wallet to, you know, to fund it. So they'd be able to follow you there. Once you're kind of within that Lightning network um, system, if you like, it'd be very difficult for cash App to then know where you're spending. Um, so generally speaking, spending privacy is pretty good on Lightning. Uh, there are some nuances around it, but generally speaking, it's pretty good for spenders. That's not the case for receivers, unfortunately, if you're doing it through your own node. And, you know, um, there's been various podcasts recently covering the the, the the technical nuances around that. But yeah, to answer your question, generally speaking, yes, for spending on Lightning, it's um, uh, th- because it's not on chain, there's no uh, sort of permanent record of where you're spending. So it would take a much more... Um, uh, live or in progress, sophisticated attack for somebody to be able to try and see where you're spending your sat. So yeah, generally speaking, a little bit more private. Okay, I see that. Yeah, so I, I don't know nothing about atomic swaps, by the way. But in my in my example here, I'm thinking you buy some Bitcoin um, on Cash App. You 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 via Lightning. Uh, you paste the Lightning invoice to Moon, so it goes from Cash App Lightning to Moon, and then maybe from Moon you go to your cold storage. And I know Moon handles the lightning and on-chain as an atomic swap. By the time it makes it to your cold storage, 
Is that secure? Or, or is there still a link there? Or did you already answer that? Uh, yeah, so this, this, you're kind of trading off privacy between different uh, third parties, I guess. So you'd kind of, the, the, the trail from uh, Cash App would have gone cold, but then Moon would know your cold storage address, essentially. And obviously, I, I, I'm not a user of Moon, but I presume there's no personal identification there. So they wouldn't know, they wouldn't necessarily know, Moon wouldn't know who you are, but they would know that your Moon wallet and your potentially your IP address, if you're not using a using a Tor or a VPN, they would be able to associate your IP address with the uh, Bitcoin address within your cold storage. So there's a, there's a lot of nuance around it. And I w- what I would say is if you're um, wanting to kind of break deterministic links and, uh, you know, to get into cold storage eventually, one of the best ways to do that will be with uh, Whirlpool coin joins through Samurai Wallet or through Sparrow Wallet. We've talked a lot about that today. Um, Sparrow Wallet actually has a really cool feature where you can use it to do Whirlpool coin joins, which are collaborative transactions between you and multiple other Bitcoiners that uh, essentially mask uh, who owns the output of the transaction. You can actually do that automatically to your cold storage now. So you could set up a hot wallet with Sparrow to do your coin joins from. Um, and you could also use Sparrow to manage your cold storage device. Um, and you could tell Sparrow, okay, after uh, all of my UTXOs have got three mixes. I want you to spend all of them automatically to my cold storage device. Once you've set that going, there's no further import. Um, they'll just slowly remix away. And when they hit your target, they'll be sent off uh, to your cold storage device. So uh, that would be my preferred way of tackling the the analogy that you just used. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's fantastic. I only had one problem when doing, and it's not a problem. This is just more of a, of a pickiness, I guess. Um, I know if you have the Ronin Dojo stack, you can actually do this inside of your node, meaning that your node is already plugged in and constantly running. The, the, I guess the non-convenient problem that I have with Sparrow, and I love Sparrow's UI. Uh, Sparrow was my introduction to Whirlpool, so super clean to understand uh, you know, the different types of, of, uh, of wallets that it creates, the Docs wallet, all that. Um, keeping my computer on to be able to continue to remix <laughs> yeah, was it was yeah. a big pain point for me and from unless you can correct me here the only way to avoid that is to get the Ronin Dojo stack is that yeah so Sparrow Wallet does have a setting within it that should prevent your computer from sleeping I think it's in the tools menu um, yeah the but it has to stay on, that does work yeah yeah so but if yeah. you if you enable that that should if it works correctly uh, prevent your computer from going to sleep and you shouldn't have to kind of manually keep it awake or anything like that but I know that that doesn't always work for some people depending on your operating system and computer and stuff right. but yeah the, the if you want to kind of set it and forget it and you don't want to leave your computer on yeah Ronin Dojo with the Whirlpool uh, kind of on the node if you like is is fantastic for that it'll you know I've had mine running for like over a year now and it just you know I, I don't have to do anything. All I do is I send some funds into my Samurai wallet, hit mix, and then Rona Dojo takes over and all of my sats are just remixing 24-7 until I decide that I want to spend them to wherever. Uh, so yeah, that in terms of like the, the complete hands-off approach, uh, nothing comes close to Rona Dojo, but there's a bit more of a, uh, of a hurdle to get over when you compare it with just downloading Spiral Wallet and keeping your computer running. So um, it's horses, of course, at the end of the day. This, it's going to be uh, a different approaches for different people and what you require from your sort of Whirlpool experience. Yeah, no, I would love to just, like you just highlighted, because that's what I was experimenting with. I was experimenting with 
having that, you know, mix a few times and then spit out to a multi-state cold storage uh, address, which I figured out that, um, yeah, that, that it was possible. I was able to get it off a few times, but um, I haven't been whirlpooling as of late, but as of, I'm going to go and say maybe eight months ago, maybe even closer to a year, uh, man, those mixes weren't coming around often enough for me to justify leaving my machine on, you know, for, for you know, the, the set. Of my, I had uh, five remixes was my target to be able to send out and like they weren't coming around as fast as I thought. Sometimes I would go days without a mix uh, and it was just like, all right, I can't have my node because I have a raspy blitz. So I'm like, I can't have my raspy blitz on all the time and then now have my, you know, let's say desktop computer on all the time to be able to make this happen. Maybe I'm just being too picky, but. No, no, uh, this is another one of those privacy nuances that a lot of people, when they start to use Whirlpool, have a, a bit of a stark realization of, um, you know, they kind of, they get their first mix immediately. That's kind of how it, how the system's built to work. Yep. Um, but any of the remixes thereafter, um, you're kind of in a randomized queue with however many other people are in the same situation as you, which could be, you know, hundreds of people. So, and then any remix that you get thereafter is wholly dependent on new people doing their first mix. So if there's, you know, if we go through a dry period where not many people are sending into Whirlpool, then you are either waiting for remixes or going to be waiting for, waiting for longer. So it tends to come in fits and bursts and it's absolutely, you know, that's why there's no sort of trend to it. Um, it's kind of, if you get a lot of people entering the pool, you'll get some more remixes that day and vice versa. If there's nobody coming in, you're just going to have to wait a little bit longer. And I think, um, I think I've had a couple of people kind of in DMs before you know, asking me sort of similar questions. I think one way to kind of mitigate this or because I know some people get a bit touchy of, you know, I don't like having too many funds hot. And I think if you're in that situation and that's a concern for you, then I think there's some level of kind of fund management, if you like, where only send into Whirlpool what you're comfortable with having hot at that time, if that's a concern for you. Don't send any more in until you've got the required level of remixes and then kind of just repeat that cycle so that you're never, you know, looking at your Samurai wallet or your Sparrow wallet and getting nervous about how much that you've got hot if that's, like I say, if that's a concern for you. So uh, just got to be kind of savvy about it and um, unfortunately patient sometimes. Yeah, that's just the way it goes. Yeah, definitely. Would you recommend uh, in the previous example of like having two different stacks, if somebody were to now try to, uh, I call it laundering because that's what I think about when I think about uh, washing my coins. Um, uh, and somebody wanted to like launder or clean up their KYC stack. Is that the same advice you would give is just kind of do it in just small little pieces uh, until you get your remixes? Or would you just say, hey, dump that big UTXO in there and get it spinning? It depends on that person's uh, tolerance for what they would like to have hot at the end of the day. Uh, the absolute, because of the way the fee structure works, the absolute cheapest way to do it would be to lump everything in at once because you only pay once upon entry. So you're only going to pay one fee if you throw your whole stack in. Um, whereas if you were to break your whole stack up into 10 different pieces, you're going to pay 10 lots of fees. So it's, you know, what, what do you um, value more? Do you value having your funds safe in cold storage and paying a bit and you're okay to pay a bit more fees Then take that approach. If you, you don't want to spend many sats and you're okay with having a few more funds hot, then lob it all in and, um, you know, just pay that single fee. It's again, unfortunately, it's just down to user preference. Uh, right. But generally speaking, for most people, I'd probably say the most sensible approach is to break it up into smaller chunks, especially if you're new to using this tool. Because you're gonna, you know, if it takes a little bit longer and you're you're a bit more uh, 
bit less familiar with how the tool operates, then there's more likely that you're going to get a bit touchy and a bit nervous and maybe make some mistakes. So um, as with all things Bitcoin, especially self-custody, uh, it pays to be uh, a little bit more cautious, I would say. Gotcha. Good advice. All right. Uh, before we leave privacy um, outside of Bitcoin, and we don't have to dig down deep into this unless you want to, because I know that's a whole rabbit hole in itself. So I've been... Uh, a few weeks ago, I had Eric Kaysen on and, and reading Eric Kaysen's work. I love that he seems to like not ignore Bitcoin, but he seems to take a step back and talk about um, uh, cryptography as, you know, what it is, which is a, a tool of war. Right. A and how, you know, we've been able to not only use this on the war field, but across time to basically protect us and defend us from different types of bad actors or different type of ty uh, tyrannical governments and stuff. So I've been really infatuated in that. And to stick into that privacy arena outside of Bitcoin, what would you recommend? Or And I know you have it on the Bitcoiners guide, so you could just plug it in. <laughs> um, but um, just apps, <laughs> apps that people could use to protect themselves from messaging, uh, VPNs, ideas like that. Like what attack vectors should people be protecting themselves outside of Bitcoin? Yeah, so I will take the opportunity to shell because I've got a full list of yeah. um, if you if you if you just click on toolkit on my site, there's literally everything that I use in terms of apps, computers, nodes, whatever, it's all on there. Um but yeah, outside of Bitcoin, I think I think a good approach for most people would be to rid themselves of uh the spyware on their phones. You know, most of the population either run a Google phone where Google can see everything that you do, or they run an Apple phone, which is marginally better, but it's still, you know, absolutely a closed source system and you don't really know what's going on in there so one of the my favorite sort of recommendations for people who want to be a bit more serious about it would be to look at something like getting themselves a google pixel i know that sounds a bit weird when i just said to you know rid yourself of google but when you if you buy a google pixel you can install an open source operating system on it um you know one example that I run would be Calyx OS. Uh, another example would be Graphene. Um, and this sounds really, really scary, actually, um, to be able to do this, you know, get yourself a phone and wipe the operating system off it. But um, they, the, the tools that they built to do this um, are really slick. Now you can do it in like, I think it's down to like 10 minutes now to be able to flash your phone. So um, that would be a great start. Uh, essentially what Calyx OS is, the one that I use is essentially, it's just Android but it's just got all of the Google spyware stripped out of it. Um, you can still run all of your pop popular apps if you choose to do so. Obviously, there's, there's going to be trade-offs there with, with doing that, but um, if you just want to kind of get a little bit more privacy from uh, companies that you absolutely know are sharing all of your data with it, every man under the sun because that's how they make all of their money, um, Calyx OS or Graphene on a, on a de-Googled pixel would be a great start. Um, and the the... the these operating systems also have uh, open source app stores as well. So, if you let's say you're you've got a uh, you're using an Android and you you know um, all of these spyware apps like Google Drive and all of that sort of stuff is like a big part of your life. You can get open source alternatives to all of that. Um, they're not going to have as much of a shiny, polished user interface as you're used to with Google Drive. But again, hey, you know this is this trade off to everything. And what do you value more? Do you want to be a bit more private and have to sort of get to get used to a new user interface um, or do you, are you happy to share your data with uh, every man under the sun? So there's going to be trade-offs to it. And, it, you know, going from, especially if you're coming from Apple where you're used to iOS to go over to Google without 
as to, sorry, to go over to Android without Google, that's going to be a big step. If you're already running an Android phone and you're kind of just stripping the Google bit out, it's going to be a bit less of a, of a shift change for you. So, but yeah, that would be a great start for me. Uh, and once you get into uh, running operating systems like that, like I say, those open source uh, app stores have got a whole host of privacy um, preserving or privacy conscious applications uh, and alternatives to the apps that you're used to on your phone. So that'd be a good start, I'd say. Yeah, I, I've thought about it before. Um, definitely something I still think about doing a lot. Um, I used to be huge on Android. Um, actually, in 2018, um, I graduated from a few classes on being an Android developer, um, a career that never fruitioned into much of anything. <laughs> Uh, but definitely was really deep into uh, what Google was doing and the OS level. Uh, you're right, flashing, even back then, it's probably much easier now, was pretty simple to do a few steps here and there, boom, boom, all set up. Uh, I would have to, you know, flash new dev OSs and stuff. Um, how often does Catalyx or Graphene actually keep up with interface updates from Google? Or do they at all? Do they just kind of run on their own timeline? Or when Google drops a new update, with some new UI enhancements, do they follow along with that? Yeah, uh, especially speaking for Calyx OS, they yep. they do have their own timeline. It is behind Google, obviously, because they've kind of got to pick up the pieces when the the official Android uh, builds come out. Yep. But it's not long at all. Um, you know, I'm I'm running Android 12, which is the latest Android operating system out. So um, they're not far behind, and I think Calyx OS is because it's become quite well renowned they've got a pretty good business model behind them where they sell other services to kind of fund their development so they're they're generally uh, pretty quick on the on the um, on the uptake uh, and even so with uh, security updates as well um they're really quick on that so it's not like you're installing some you know backdoor software that you know might not be supported next month um, calyx os has got a really good uh, track record and from what i can gather a fairly uh, competent developer team behind them as well that's great to hear. That actually makes me more uh, intrigued to try it out and give it a shot. Now, um, if you were to use like your, I know there's a trade off here, but say you were to install your Twitter app, we all love our Twitter app, right? Um, it is is the trade off that you were speaking about a little while ago that it requires Google Play services to do certain things, or is the trade off that it just doesn't work? <laughs> So uh, certain apps will require Google Play services to work. Uh, luckily, Calyx OS has an open source alternative to, um, it's called, uh, oh, the name's eluding me now, it's called MicroG, um, which is an open source alternative to kind of like the Google stuff that makes your fancy notifications work and things like that. So exactly. if you install MicroG when along with Calyx OS, which is kind of like the default as part of the uh, install process then, 99% of the apps that you uh, are comfortable with using today are going to work on Calyx OS. Um, in terms of like uh, services where you need to log in and tie, um, what you would do is each phone has like a, an IMEI number, which is essentially like a unique identifier. So if this phone, you can, don't want it to be um, associated with you or any of your online uh, pseudonyms then maybe installing the Twitter app and associating that with the phone this phone that you've bought with your bank card might not be a, a great idea so again it depends how far you want to take it if you just want to cut, cut Google out of your life you know knock yourself out and go and download all the apps that you're used to and just be a bit more private if you anybody then you know maybe don't install a sim card maybe buy it with cash um, and maybe keep it in a Faraday bag to prevent it from emitting, you know, uh, 
uh, information when you're not knowing about it. So like I say, it's, it depends how far you want to take this stuff. Ooh, you pulled out the Faraday bag. Holy shit. <laughs> Getting real private here. Yeah, I, I don't think I'm on that level q and I'll be honest with you. But yeah, just for the record, neither am I. Okay. <laughs> if I see you in person and you got your Faraday bag, man, that's going to be next level shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. All right, q So we're going to... Um, I want to go into, first of all, your seed tool is fucking phenomenal. Uh, I haven't seen anything like it if there is something like it that exists, meaning that not only is it literally functional, uh, but there's every step of the way there's actual like information on like, hey, before you move on, this is what, a, you know, uh, anything is what this BIP is and what is, which is super cool. Um, what I want you to do on a higher level, because I know this is, this could get into the weeds is I want you to explain to the listeners how you can go from random numbers to a seed phrase to a public key, right? To the sets of addresses that, that you know, are governed by that public key. Uh, and then from there, we can transition into hardware wallets and how that all encapsulates. Yeah, cool. So just quickly to answer your question about does something else exist? I mean, I want to be quite open and transparent that the seed tool that I've built with a super shadowy coder called Super Fat Arrow, who's absolutely the brains behind it um this was based off of uh, a tool called ian coleman uh, this is the his is the original og and i was you know it, c tool came from a place of me using ian coleman for various purposes uh, including educating people that i have consulting calls with um but it me finding frustration with the the lacking of user interface and the distinct lack of explainers and what things mean and stuff. So that's where C tool came from. We we kind of took that, we forked it, and we've added loads of stuff, but loads of extra features. And as you correctly touched on, um, loads of explainers as well, so that we're not just kind of you know telling people to hit a button and they haven't got a clue what's going on. Um, so how to keep this at a high level of how seeds are generated. Um, so essentially what your Bitcoin, when you have a Bitcoin private key um, and private key is a, is a, is a term that's become uh, bastardized a little bit, unfortunately, yeah. because most people refer to their private key as their seed words, which are kind of two different things. Um, but I understand why people do it. And it's, you know, I, I get that that's why that's sort of uh, taken hold. Um, what your private key is, is essentially a stupidly big, really random number that your wallet uh, be that a software wallet, hardware wallet, or RC tool, has generated at random. Um, and that's all it is. It's just one massive big number. From there, we have loads of different uh, BIPs, Bitcoin improvement proposals, uh, which are essentially like rule sets or maps as to what you do with that big, long, massive number to be able to derive uh, an XPUB, uh, a Bitcoin address, uh, a child private key, all of these terminologies that you're probably uh, familiar with when you've interacted with all of the different wallet software, what all of these BIPs do in their own very super technical way that's way above my head is say, okay, here's this private, here's this really large, massive number. Uh, I'm going to do these different equations and these multiplications and divisions and whatnot. And at the end of this, uh, if everybody follows the same rule set, we'll have a standard as to how we can take that big number and then derive an address or a payment code or a et cetera, et cetera. So it's probably, well, I say I was going to say it's um, out of the scope of this conversation, but it's also out of the scope of my personal knowledge as to the nuance of, you know, here's a private key and you need to divide it by this and times it by this, et cetera. That's way over my head. That's the type of stuff that I lean on super fat arrow who 
you know, like I said, like I said earlier, is the brains behind this to implement that. But um, the idea between uh, with C tool is to give people who are interested in this sort of stuff uh, a bit of an, an intro as to okay, uh, you know, all of the popular bips that you're kind of uh, used to when you're inter- interacting with wallets. So bip thirty nine seed words, uh, xpub, so that sort of thing. Uh, give you a bit of an intro as to this is what it's for. This is how you interact with it. And this is why it might be useful for you. So um, I hope that's answered your question. I'll try to uh, answer it without getting too technical and making a complete fool of myself and keeping it <laughs> fairly high level. <laughs> no, no, I, you know, I, I deal with, you know, multi-signature and keys pretty much from my day job <clears throat> all day as well. So I, this is stuff that like, it, it's, it's a lot. It, it's a lot for a lot of people to really understand how they uh, incorporate with each other, how they speak to each other. Um, so just to kind of sum up what you're saying, so the private key is a you know random set of numbers, and then everything that happens after it, whether it's the you know the seed phrases, uh, the words, the readable words that we got, those are all just bips, which are basically just instructions for what the network should be doing with the previous step, the private key, what do you do next, et cetera. Is is that a good way to break it down, or? Yeah, in, in in respect to wallets, uh, what makes all of these the various bips important is that um, you know there's a standard way of well there's there's a way of anybody can generate a really massive random number. You can do it by hand. You can do it with dice, etc. Yeah. However you want to do it. Um, the crucial bit is what we do after that to be able to derive seed words, etc. Um, if we all did different things, we'd have a complete nightmare of a Bitcoin space of you know. I'd generate a wallet with Sparrow that did it one way. And then if I wanted to move across to um, a passport from Foundation Vices or a cold card or a samurai wallet, and they all did their own different things, I'm screwed. I'm like, you know, I've got to stay with whoever has created that wallet with me initially um, because everybody else plays by a different rule set. So to be able to have these bips that, I was going to say everyone then, I would say 99.9% of the wallets in the space all abide by the same rules. Uh, it means that, you know, if Sparrow Wallet disappears tomorrow, you can take it and put it into your hardware wallet. And if that hardware wallet manufacturer disappears, you can go and put it into your Samurai Wallet. And because they all play by the same standard, the users benefit and you're not kind of left out in the cold with um, with a big random number that you have no idea what you need to do with to be able to spend your Bitcoin. Yeah, so standard rules across the whole network, basically, for those that want to play along, at least. Uh, I'm sure there's those that don't. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, thankfully, most people do. There are some outliers. You know, Electrum has their own kind of seed uh, setup, although they do they do also allow people to use the standard BIP39, which is the 12 or 24 word seeds that most people listening to this will be really familiar with. Uh, I think Moon Wallet does their own special thing as well um, with different backups. I don't think they show a seed word. So there are some outliers, but like I say, most of the space uh, all uh, abide by the same uh, BIP or rule set so that most of the users are, are covered. Yeah. And we should, if we're talking about huge amounts of Bitcoin or funds, then maybe you should go with the standard uh, and do your research there because I would hate to find out after stacking for 10 years, that moon did something slightly different that's going to fuck me over. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think, you know, I'm not trying to throw shade at moon here because yeah. there's definitely room for for people or wallet manufacturers, uh, sorry, developers to try and push the boundaries because, you know, we've got BIP39, which is your seed words, which everybody's familiar with. 
that doesn't mean to say that that's the be all and end all. There might be a better way to do that. So we, there's a fine balance between somebody going rogue and creating their own new standard that doesn't make any sense and, you know, their users being screwed and, you know, also trying to push the boundaries and improve that user experience. So it's a, it's a, you know, a fine balance to be able to strike and is sort of far beyond me. That's I'll leave that sort of stuff to the technical guys, but for the purposes of what you or I do on a day-to-day basis and most people who are coming into the space, I think being able to write down 12 or 24 words is a very, very good place to start. And um, in terms of being able to simplify that even more, uh, who knows what the future holds. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think, QR codes is, is what's going next. But yeah, we're already going down that arena, uh, seed signer, a bunch of different aspects. I think you guys are doing that. We'll get into foundation pretty soon here. Um, but anyways, all right. I I agree with, some. just to sum up this section here, I agree with something that Gigi was saying when he came on the episode uh, about a month back. And it's basically, uh, he actually wrote about it, is, is the language of Bitcoin is just way too confusing right now. Like there's way too many different, you know, like uh, what a private key is uh, and, you know, signing devices versus hardware wallets. Like we need to kind of start standardizing these things because it's going to become extremely difficult for people to come on to try to understand these things, Uh, especially in the key analogy where people are used to using an actual physical key to put into a lock. Um, So with, (laughs) yeah, yeah. I I was just going to say that that's, this is one of the key, no pun intended, one of the key problems of like a a decentralized uh, community like Bitcoin is we kind of, uh, because there's no central authority, everybody has their own way of doing something. Sometimes one standard will start to emerge and then somebody else will say, we've got too many standards. I'm going to create a new standard to encompass all of these ones and because mine's better. And then what you end up with is just another standard to add to the pile. And because the, I guess it's one of the hectic beauties, if you like, of a decentralized system is that this sort of stuff is difficult to gain consensus on. And um, hopefully the, the best one will win in the end. But yeah, Gigi's absolutely right in, in what he's saying. And the terminology is is not only difficult, but it's also used interchangeably, especially in the terms of like private keys, where it might not strictly be accurate, but it's kind of because we've always used it or because we've used it for, for three or four or five years, it's kind of stuck and trying to move away from that sort of legacy is quite difficult. Yeah. And as he well exp- uh, explained now with these governments starting to bat an ad, the terminology is actually being used to fight against Bitcoin or to weaponize Bitcoin. Um, so. Yeah, that, that's a crazy situation. So we're going to shift over to hardware wallets here. Um, but before we go into that, I guess with that terminology talk, what, what, what side of the fence are you on? Signing device or hardware wallets? <laughs> I, I like both. Uh, obviously, hardware wallet has the, the legacy. I, I don't actually draw a massive problem with the term hardware wallet. I know it's not technically accurate, um, but I think, the fact that we've got uh, hardware, the, the, the term hardware in there, it kind of makes sense that because these devices are physical, uh, Bitcoin is not physical. So um, I, it, it's quite it's descriptively correct, if that's even a, a correct phrase there. Um, <laughs> I don't actually draw a massive problem with it. And I genuinely think signing device, although technically speaking is more accurate, um, is more confusing to newcomers. So uh, I don't actually have a problem with hardware wallet personally. Okay, great. So let's get into hardware wallets. Um, please uh, fill me in on what you guys got working on in foundation, uh, the benefits of foundation and, and anything along that line. I'm really interested to find out about foundation. Like I said, before we started recording, I've been knowing about you know what you guys got going on for quite some time now. Um, I just 
haven't had a need to get a new hardware wallet. Uh, but please. Yeah, so uh, if I, the company I work for, Foundation Devices, we are um, we manufacture hardware wallets or signing devices, depending on which side of the fence <laughs> you sit on. Um, we we pride ourselves on being completely fully open source in everything that we do. So all of the, uh, obviously the software, all of the schematics for the, the device that we make uh, is all completely published. If you wanted to go and build one of these yourself and completely cut us out of the uh, out of the loop, you can do if you're technically aptitude you know if you're technically able enough um but our main aim uh with passport which is our our uh, flagship fan um, sorry our flagship hardware wallet uh is to make a super secure um bitcoin hardware wallet that isn't um really daunting for newcomers so what we like to do is we put sort of design and user interface at the forefront of everything that we do um, whilst making sure that we kind of have really high defaults uh, in terms of um, making sure that the users have got the best hardware, making sure that the users are taking the, we kind of steer them towards the best decisions and we, we package all of that in what I personally believe is a really beautiful device that's kind of visually appealing as well as uh, serving its main purpose of being able to secure your Bitcoin private keys offline in a completely air-gapped fashion. You know, our device has no, uh, there's no uh, data ports on it. So we've got a USB-C port to to be able to charge the device. But if you were to try and plug that into a computer, um, there's no data getting through there because the the ports on the actual plug, on the, on sorry, the pins on the port of the device they're physically not there. So if you, even if you tried to plug it in to install some malicious software on it, you've got no chance. Uh, nice. We've got a beautiful color screen. Uh, we, we run it on a lithium ion battery. So uh, one of the key selling points is for me, especially from the newcomers, is that you don't have to have like a battery pack hanging off this device to turn it on. You don't need to have it plugged into the wall. Um, it, it actually runs on, um, do you remember the old Nokia phones that, that, Kind of that that were absolutely bulletproof. You know, you could drop them off a building yeah. and, and nothing would happen to them. <laughs> yeah. it, it runs the it runs the same battery as one of them, so it's kind of like a commoditized battery that's really cheap and easily replaceable uh, that holds its charge for like eight to ten hours in our benchmarking. So, you know, you can if you're if you're not a heavy user of this, you can charge it once a year if you like and just uh, nice. keep it in your drawer and it's it's ready to go. Um, yeah, so it's completely air gapped, so it operates via. Uh, you can either operate via micro SD card, which cold card users will be familiar with. Um, or it, you know, the preferred way is it's got a camera on board and you can interact with uh, various different software wallets. You know, we're compatible with pretty much everybody via the use of QR codes. So same as seed signer, same as Keystone. Um, you know, you pass that transaction detail back and forth by scanning QR codes off your computer or your phone and then passing them back across via the QR codes on the device. So like I say, we, we focus on security first and foremost, but we also are really conscious to wrap that in something that's really approachable um, so that people can have the best of both worlds and be able to not be scared about interacting with their, their Bitcoin cold storage, essentially. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not going to say sold, but I'm like really intrigued on all those points that you just hit. Um, you know, no transparency here. I have a cold card. I have an MK3. I've had one for a while. Um, but... The battery pack thing, although it's not the end of the world, something extra that I got to have around me in order to interact with this thing. Um, the fact that I could accidentally, and I know there's a feature to shut it off in the code card, but I could accidentally plug this into a computer and already have data interacting. Don't want that. No bueno. Just in case my wife decides to plug it in or something like that. Um, 
but the camera on board. I find it incredibly, and I'm sure the world finds it incredibly more convenient to be able to interact with QR codes, especially when it's going back and forth. Um, how do you guys, I wouldn't say guarantee, but how do you guys like soothe the fear of this camera being able to send information anywhere? Is that like a fear that your clients have? Like, well, camera, you know, typically cameras record things. And now do you guys get that at all? Or It's not a complaint that I've ever heard um, aired before. Um, I, I, I guess to try and understand your concern, is it that, um, because obviously the camera's on the device and it's got no ability to connect to anything else. Is it just that it would essentially read like a malicious uh, QR code from, say, Sparrow Wallet or something like that? Is that what you're suggesting? No, I think you just answered it there. I think it's the fact that your device is not able to broadcast information anywhere. So if my camera was going live and let's say you, and this is just reaching into the dark, I'm not saying you guys are doing this, but <laughs> say, say that there's a like a chip on board that's actually collecting information from the camera to then you know, broadcast that information or share that information somehow, some way with, you know, a bad actor or back to company headquarters, whatever it may be. Um, I, I would think that, especially in the Bitcoin space, people would be really, really careful with anything that has a camera attached to it. But I think you answered it by saying, well, the camera doesn't do shit because it can't share information about shit. Yeah, exactly. And and also the everything that runs on the device needs its, you know, it, it needs software to to kind of tell it to what to do. That software is completely open source. Anybody can go and download it, read every single line of it if they want to. Uh, you know, we've had security audits, uh, independent security auditors go through, do exactly that um, and give us a clean bill of health. Um, but obviously we have various, you know, frequent firmware updates. So each and every one of those are also published openly to the public. So anybody with the technical know-how to do so can to, can interrogate that. And if in the, the worst case scenario that you're suggesting there, uh, that, you know, the theory goes with, you know, with so, uh, uh, open source software is that somebody somewhere would pick up on that and would raise the alarm so that, you know, you or I that are not able to do that would be able to benefit from that as well. So again, one of the other beauties of open source software that everything's done and developed out in the open. Yeah, yeah, man. I'm just being paranoid. Just trying to poke holes. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not to the... be paranoid. Yeah, it does. It does. I just, you know, in, in the day job too, I hear a lot of even people that are more paranoid than me. So I always like to scope out these questions. So um, I don't know if you can, maybe you can answer this. Maybe not. I asked it before we started recording, but like, so how as a business foundation, um, or is this even a goal? Maybe it's just to capture new new people coming into the space. How would you get somebody that has their hardware wallet and has had it for a while and maybe hodls a lot and doesn't really need it to show interest or to maybe even purchase a passport? I think that would just come from letting the product speak for itself. Uh, ultimately, if we build a product that is better than our competitors, people are going to move across from that. Um, you know, there's... The, there's certain companies in the space that have built up quite a legacy. You know, they've been around a lot longer than we have and they obviously build up trust within their customer base, which is completely understandable. We're, we're a much newer company. We've been around since uh, mid 2020. So we're still kind of making a name for ourselves. We're only just uh, about to, well, today, what's the date? Yeah, today, we're just about to start shipping our second device, the, the new Passport. So we're still a new company. We're still building a brand for ourselves and we're just going to take things slowly and to uh, let our work do the talking um, and just make sure that we make the best product with the best design and security decisions possible so that we, um, you know, we kind of make it easy for new customers and, and existing customers to decide 
um, you know, if they see value in what we're doing and the hardware that we're producing and the user interface that we are wrapping around all of that, uh, people will naturally just gravitate towards us. But obviously that's going to take time. People are loyal to brands and, and understandably so. So, um, yeah, it's just going to take time and we'll let our, um, our uh, work do the talking, if, it, if I can put it that way. Yeah, absolutely. Makes a ton of sense. And just, you know, uh, I'm educating people like me and, you know, hopefully the listeners as well, because I will say just a few features there personally, um, I, I'm already interested in and, and, and definitely uh, looking to pick up a passport. Uh, so there's a newer model that just came out. Yeah, start shipping today. It's called Passport Batch 2. So um, all of the features that I just mentioned uh, are for this device that we're about to ship. Uh, we do have our Founders Edition, which is completely sold out now. We just did a, an initial batch of a 1,000 devices that started shipping last year. Um, and obviously, this new device is an improvement on that. You know, it's got a color screen, whereas the old one had a monochromatic one. The old one ran on uh, AAA batteries, which, you know, it was still portable, but um, obviously uh, it wasn't rechargeable. So you have to kind of replace the batteries on that. So we just kind of made incremental steps. We've slimmed down the device, made it look better, color screen, better camera, et cetera, et cetera. And just those incremental improvements now that we're starting to mature as a company and um, to make that custom experience that uh, so much better. Um, I've got a couple of the uh, batch two devices on my desk here now. That obviously, I've been uh, working hard at the last couple of weeks filming all of the, uh, the the documentation videos and things like that. So it's been an absolute joy to uh, to work with, um, and uh, I'm hoping that uh, our customers are going to think the same. So I'm really, really excited to to get it uh, out into our customers' hands um, as of next week. You know, it's been it's been a long time coming. We were hoping to ship much earlier than this, but um, as we're um, hopefully everybody listening to this is all well well too aware that the uh, global supply chains have been in a little bit of a mess and some of our um some of our components and packaging and things like that is comes from all over the world so it's been uh, it's been a bit of a headache to try and um coordinate all of that together to to put you know to build these devices and get them into our customers hands so one thing i will say is we're eternally grateful for everybody that's pre-ordered and been super super patient with us while we um busted gut to try and get everything together and get these devices built. So it's been, yeah, a long time coming and really, really happy to say that we're shipping literally as of today. Yeah, no, congratulations to you and the company. Um, I rather, you know, history with, with tech, I rather have something ship when it's ready than ship when it's too early. Uh, so it sounds like you guys have been putting your due diligence in not only in the, the creation of the devices and fighting all this stuff that you just stated, uh, but in testing the device uh, and, 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 and getting ready to roll. So congratulations to y'all. Um, I, I just want to hit one more point here because like I told you, I have a trailer truck sitting in my driveway ready to move. So I could talk to you all day, but my wife wouldn't be too happy about that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I want to ask you one more Q and a, um, since you're head of support, I'm head of support, Bitcoin only companies. I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on how important support is to a Bitcoin company, uh, especially in, in, in a space that you and I would probably agree that is very early. Uh, and needs a lot of educating. How important is support in a Bitcoin company? Oh, it's absolutely massive, especially when we're dealing with self-custody like both you, are, you and I are. Um, we've kind of touched on it earlier. I mean, this is a scary space to come into. Bitcoin is an alien concept to 99% of the population. Uh, not many people are technically um, able enough to kind of pick up this, the, the concepts that we talk about and we take for granted on a day-to-day -day basis. So, um, it's a massive step for some people to, to be able to, or to try to kind of, um, 
remove their Bitcoin from an exchange. You know, people like you or I wax lyrical about this all day, you know, not your keys, not your coins. Yep. That step is massive, absolutely huge for people and the the responsibility required and, and the the stress it can cause. And I did it myself back in 2018, 2019 to take in custody of your own funds is a scary, scary thing. So um, having somebody like you or I to, even if it's just be on the other end of an email, just to answer a question that might be really, really trivial to you or I, that would be the, um, the catalyst for somebody to be able to take their, their funds off an exchange or buy their first hardware wallet or to set up their first multi-sig, whatever that may be, um, is crucial. You know, it's, it's the, there is no official Bitcoin helpline, uh, by the very nature of how this decentralized system works. So I guess, uh, we, you or I are kind of that by proxy, unfortunately, whether we like it or not. So, uh, <laughs> I certainly like it and I'm sure you do too. Oh, um, yeah. but yeah, I think just, to, just having somebody, um, there to ask the questions because I needed that when I entered the space and luckily loads of people were, were good enough to be my uncle Jim and answer my stupid questions back then. Um, and you know, I kind of just owe it to the, the space to be able to be that you know, Uncle Jim to, to answer those trivial questions to other people because people were good enough to do that for me. And, you know, that's how we, we grow this space is that we, we all stand on the shoulders of somebody else who's, who's our giant. And, you know, we just pass down our knowledge and share information. And uh, that's how we get the, hopefully we get this or continue this viral nature of this, uh, of this thing. And hopefully we're all going to win one day. If I can play my small part in that, uh, I'm doing something good for the world. Hey, man, I'm here shoulder to shoulder with you, but I agree 100% uh, on everything you said. I think it's crucial to have somebody you can reach out to and actually try to simplify these things for you and quote unquote, hold your hand through this process because we do take it for granted. A lot of us grew up with technology. Um, a lot of us, you know, are deep in the rabbit hole and just understand Bitcoin. Um, and yeah, a lot, 99, like you said, percent of the population do not. Uh, and I get those calls every day. I'm sure you get those calls every day. And you know, it's just super grateful uh, that I was able to come from a, you know, typical fiat job in the medical industry where I didn't agree with the values and the virtues of the of, uh, of the healthcare industry to be able to come now into the Bitcoin space, work full time and literally day in and day out, be able to get more keys in the hands of the people uh, and, and help them and educate them. Um, I know that's something you hold close to your heart. You've talked about it this whole conversation. And uh, this is why I was excited to have this conversation with you, man. So. I'm with you, man. Bitcoin-only companies and education, education, education. The work is not done. We've got a lot of work to do. Yeah, definitely. And hopefully if there's anybody listening to this who's not taking that step to, to take their self-custody or is a little bit scared to get involved in some of the communities, uh, use this as your final push to, to go and do that. Um, my DMs are open. If you need help with anything at all, uh, just shoot me a DM, Telegram, Threema, Twitter, wherever it may be, um, just just get involved. And I'm sure, you know, Bitcoiners are really, really friendly people. Um, some of them might not be on Twitter, but uh, if you speak to them one-on-one, uh, they're, they're uh, all too uh, all too happy to help out with any questions that you may have. And, and there, there is no stupid question. Um, just get involved, get amongst it, get your hands dirty, use Testnet, and just don't be afraid to, to, to make mistakes. Just uh, Just start. Yeah, yeah. Echo that 100%. I appreciate everything you do, good sir. Um, Q&A, we're going to have to do this again, man. I, I have so much that I want to talk to you about, man. Um, glad you reached out to even be on the show. Glad you made some time for me. I know time is valuable for all of us. 
Um, and uh, friend of the show, man, looking forward to our future conversations. Uh, please let the listeners know. I know you just gave them a little bit, but like, you know, where they can follow you. Um, you can plug the Bitcoiners guide in one more time because it is that good. Uh, but also where they can pick up the new passport and, and anywhere else you want to send them. Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter. I am at BitcoinQ underscore A. Uh, my website where you can find all the resources we've been talking about is Bitcoiner.guide. Uh, if you head to foundationdevices.com, you can see uh, everything that we're about at Foundation and pick up a passport. Um, and yeah, you'll be able to find everything on the website. And uh, yeah, I just want to thank you too. And uh, your podcast is one one of the few that I listen to regularly. So thank you for your contributions to the space and uh, keep keep doing what you do, man. Appreciate you. Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. All right, folks, that's going to wrap up episode 75. You guys know where to find us. Podcasting 2.0 apps is the best way to support the show. Uh, we like Fountain and we like Breeze, but there's a ton of them out there. Let's keep this decentralized. Let's try other products uh, because they all do the same thing and they provide value for the value that we're giving back here on the show. If you want to catch this 4K content, Bitcoin TV is where we would like for you to go. That's that's the place where hopefully here in the next few features, uh, in, the, in the future, all video content for Bitcoin is going to end up. Uh, and if you haven't quite caught up and you're still using those legacy platforms, feel free to just rate, share and subscribe. That helps us get up there in the algorithm and everybody else can get this value as well. Q&A once again, one more time. I appreciate you. Cheers, man. Been an absolute pleasure. Speak soon. All right. Well, do. And that wraps up episode 75. Later, y'all.